before we start, folks, I just wanted to put this out there. Uh, both Devin and I, as well as Mitch, uh, we've all been gone for a little while. Uh, most of that is on me. Um, I recently moved, had uh, a funeral and some other important things I had to take care of. And as you can see, I'm in a new space. Uh, everything is in boxes still. Uh, Devin and I were struggling at 4, a, or 4 p.m. on a Monday trying to gather all of our equipment to actually do a show. So... With that in mind, Devin, are you ready to get started? Oh, I've been ready. (laughs) (laughs) In five, four, three, two. Hello and welcome back to another episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. This is episode 129, where Devin and I do a reunion tour. Devin. It's been quite some time. What have you been up to, man? Oh, my goodness. Um, lo- lots of shooting. I'm trying to think. Um, man, there was – I used a red camera for a while. Uh, that was kind of a new experience for me, uh, shooting a parade gorilla style. I helped out Twitter with the Rogue One event with their Q&A there, which I think you can still find on Twitter or it's been reposted to YouTube. Um, but that was a lot of fun. Uh, made some new friends and stuff like that. And uh, it's honestly, since then, it's been a lot of post work. I've been trapped inside of here at my desk for eight hours a day, uh, grueling through animations and several other very boring things. Um, but besides, you know, your moving situation and everything else, have you had any time for work or uh, anything fun or have you just been <laughs> moving? So I did manage to fly down and uh, do two shoots. We uh, shot a short horror film uh, that's about 20 minutes long. Uh, That's going into post-production as soon as this computer is fully (laughs) up and operational. Uh, We also did uh, two commercials uh, for some car companies. Um, Those are flying events. I could fly there, go back. Luckily, I don't have to do any editing for the commercials, so that's not my problem. That's someone else's problem. I just ran a camera. Uh, Otherwise, Devin, I have a bag full of kit that I carry with me so I can actually do my work. And the rest of it is all packed away, Uh, packed away so much so that um, I I couldn't even find all the kit to do the podcast, guys. Uh, Devin (laughs) is actually uh, backing me up today, recording the audio for this. Attempting. Attempting. Yeah. Uh, So if if the audio quality or the uh, pizzazz of the show is a little different today, it's because uh, this is a brand new desk. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) In fact... I couldn't even find a power supply to run my webcam, so I've actually got a battery <laughs> sitting on my desk. But that's enough about that. Devin, I think it's probably time for the news. Time for the news. It's been so long that I don't even remember where the buttons are anymore. <laughs> First thing on the list here, guys, is actually the big elephant in the room, something we've been excited about for quite some time, the Panasonic. GH5. We've speculated. We've made things up. We've pretended that we knew a lot and didn't know anything. And now we actually know something. This camera is now on pre-order. And I myself, I don't know about you, Devin, but I uh, I threw down right away. As soon as I found the B&H pre-order link, I went ahead and ordered this camera. It will be coming to me as soon as it is available for sale. And you too can use the show note links if you are interested and pre-ordering uh some spoilers here and actually not spoilers at all because you've already probably heard all this news from some other outlet but Devin, mm-hmm. let's go through this here we've had speculation for a long time now that we've seen the actual specs what were we right about and what were we wrong about <laughs> 
Well, uh, more or less, I'd say that uh, you were really big about 5K, and it doesn't seem like there is strictly necessarily a 5K mode, and I think that kind of has to do with the aspect ratio of the sensor. Uh, but you're kind of right because you did promise, or they did promise in a firmware update that they're going to have some kind of anamorphic 5K mode, 5 point something K or something like that. Um, I think that that's probably one of the best things to hear about this camera is the fact that they're already announcing uh, what they're going to be doing updates with, showing just like the GH3 and the GH4, they're going to keep those firmware updates rolling along uh, and in adding features. But uh, we were, I, I guess we were right and wrong because we went back and forth about in-body stabilization. Um, what was nice that we didn't even discuss before was getting rid of that 4K crop, which I'm sure you'll be happy to see. Um, because that's probably one oh, of the man. reasons why you've preferred your Sony over the Panasonic as of late is because of just the 4K, you got more area and it's don't have to deal with all that crop. Yeah, taking a 2X crop, I mean, it's already bad enough it's 2X and then you crop in even further and it makes uh, your 4K shooting a little bit irritating because you sort of frame things up as you're taking some stills and then you go to shoot and you're like, wait a minute, I just lost another point two or so. Uh, the other thing now with your speed booster, you'll actually... <laughs> get better uh framing than you would out of the full frame um canon 5d mark IV. <laughs> so uh, there's a plus uh stills wise this probably isn't going to be a crazy beast compared to some of the other things out there uh but we still are getting a 20 megapixel sensor so uh, that, to me and I, I might be wrong I, I don't do a ton of big uh photo shoots i just do stills for behind the scenes and some occasional product shots and so on and 20 megapixels is more than enough in fact 16 megapixels is often plenty for web production so in that regard i am just fine with uh the stills portion of this now we have the embody image stabilization we have some crazy 4k uh, uh frame rates up to 60 frames per second we have the new uh what was that i think it's like 10 bit 422 uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, and we're even talking about uh, in a future firmware update, the 4K is going to have 10 bit. Um, uh, but yeah, right now, for sure, I know the 1080p has uh, 10 bit 422, which is great for people if you're green screening or you just want that added color depth because you know you're going to throw it around. And that includes, too, like built in support for LUTs, uh, which is a thing we just haven't seen in a DSLR camera. I mean, that's kind of innovative on its own. Um, while there has kind of been cameras in this price that do do LUTs, having that in such a small form factor, I, I want to talk about what they haven't, uh, or people haven't been shouting about with the GH5, which is one, uh, improve low light uh, with that new sensor, the new Venus whatever, or I don't even know they call it Venus anymore, but that new chip they got in there for the denoising, that's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, for considering it's micro four thirds, like no one's going to take the title away right now from the Sony A7S, but considering the tiny sensor size, that's really impressive low light performance really impressive uh color that you're getting out of it along with that lut uh we see again they're going with the whole anamorphic 4k uh, which is interesting because i don't know a lot of filmmakers who are picking up a gh4 or gh5 for doing anamorphic work uh but there must be a market considering that lumex keeps putting so much effort into that category uh the other thing too that there's been demos of that i've been really impressed with is the reduced rolling shutter um it's kind of starting to look to me like on point with like a c100 or c300 if you're familiar with that, like real reduction from DSLR standards of rolling shutter. So 
I've been a big fan about that along with the in-body stabilization. I just see this as being an even better run-and-gun solution. Um, and then, like, the dual memory card slots, maybe people don't care about that. For me, that's huge because I would love to run dual recording. I know most and people just trust their memory cards, but I, I've had them fail, and I don't like it. <laughs> they're also moving to the UHS-2 standard, so now we can get twice as much speed out of our memory cards as we were previously, which means when the 400-megabit Kodak comes into play, we'll actually be able to <laughs> To record on those without having to buy like thousand dollar memory cards uh, to be honest with you the gh5 all i really wanted was in-body image stabilization mm-hmm. and i wanted uh better low light performance and you know if you're going to give me increased color reproduction and some better codecs whatever that's great that's awesome not going to plan it all and maybe a better audio interface and they've delivered on all those things that the new xlr audio adapter that works with the hot shoe just like the sony that's mm-hmm. that's exactly what I want out of all cameras <laughs> from now on. Like I, I don't want it to be seven hundred dollars like the K1M XLR audio adapter for the Sony units. I want it to be you know three or four hundred bucks like a Juice Link, the price yeah. of a regular box, and go. And I also sorta and I, this is one thing I fear about having these proprietary adapters with the Juice Link and uh, some of the other audio XLR adapters we use. They're generic. They use the three point five millimeter jack with these. Hopefully, at some point, there's not a format change and, and Panasonic decides, well, wait a minute. We don't really care about that uh, input <laughs> adapter or hot shoe special technology. And Sony's done that in the past. If you go back to some of their old XLR audio adapters that work for your hot shoe, some of those old ones, you have to rewire the plug somehow in order to get them to work with the modern pinout yeah. on the top of the thing. So uh, that's that's a complaint plus a lot mostly praise uh the price devin two thousand dollars hot or not i i would say dude that's really reasonable i mean i don't know who else you're going to get 10 bit from and where else you're going to get codex this high uh i mean that is one thing that you were wrong about because you were really pushing that h265 was possible it could be a thing and it seems like panasonic hold on in the (laughs) standards it does say they're using hvec which is the high efficiency video codec yeah so i mean <laughs> that's that's what h.265 was so you know we haven't seen we haven't seen stuff out of this yet i bet it still has h.265 inside maybe, <laughs> maybe not. we'll see uh, we we need to get some raw footage i've been seeing a lot of youtube uploads which have been really impressive i want to get my hands on some actual video files straight out of it but uh so far really impressive sharp as always uh for me it's just it's it's a total win um, for me, it's an obvious buy. I actually haven't pre-ordered it yet. I'm still working out. I got to get some gigs done. I'm waiting on some checks and stuff like that. But um, <laughs> but it's for me, it really ticks off a lot of the stuff I'm looking for. I know for a lot of people, too, it uh, goes back and forth. Because uh, lately, I've been doing a ton of shooting with the Blackmagic Pocket. And that, you know, seems interesting because the shooting I'm doing with it isn't even raw. It's not even using the full capabilities of that camera. Um, and so why am I shooting with that instead of a, a GH3, GH4? And that's mostly a director's decision. But it's because they see it as being a filmic image coming off of that sensor. And um, there's there's some videos I don't have queued up or linked up or anything like that. But, like, you'd be surprised at what you could do to... Uh, high quality image it doesn't even need to be 10 bit but a sharp image out of the gh4 and make it look filmic and guess what most of it is just lifting the shadows and softening the image because to be honest that's kind of where it is when the g 
GH4 is kind of resolving more resolution than the red epics and everything else. Um, you end well, up in this. I don't know if I would. I would go that far. Well, the, the, of course. Like, there's a bunch of form boys who like go crazy on this stuff, being like, "Oh, look at this! If you pixel peep here and here, you, the contrast and da 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 da." But uh, <laughs> either way, one thing I found fascinating too, while we talk about bigger resolutions, is that um, with red going 8K. Uh, there's actually talks about 8K creating a softer image. And it, it gets really complicated, and I'm not a scientist, and it has something to do with the way that um, light is not perfectly filling each pixel, uh, that when you start to go 8K, you actually start to get a much more organic image, and you're actually really getting close to uh, celluloid, as people consider it. So that, I've always been like, you don't need more resolution, but then with this 8K image and the way that it's really like bringing resolution down below where film grain is for uh you know your general like 64 millimeter film and stuff like that um it's really fascinating and for me i think something like a gh5 could totally work in a narrative workflow and what i'd like to do is when i get my hands on it is really bring out like a real example a tutorial of like yo how can we mold this image what ways can we make this actually filmic in a way that people like because i think the color coming out of the panasonic is a great place to start and the fact that there's log and there's LUT support i think it makes a great uh running gun short film camera and for the price with the xlr and everything else for me i'm excited about that xlr thing too for all the corporate videos and everything that i do just being able to jack in and not need to have a second adapter or power for that adapter that's huge for me the other thing, uh, interestingly, they included uh, HDMI locks, which uh, Sony first started doing. So you don't have to go out of your way to buy an extra lock to lock your HDMI port. And it's a full-size HDMI port, which, oh, uh, yes. yeah. which is also <laughs> extremely handy. The only irritation I have is, and I'm, and I'm looking around my desk right now, I have all these micro the full-size <laughs> HDMI ports, uh, cables laying around, and they're the really expensive thin ones. So a lot of those are going to end up being paperweights, which is unfortunate. <laughs> Uh, but a full-size port, I can't complain about that. The other weird thing, and you can already buy this for sale, and uh, I was looking at this this morning because it's just a such a strange deal. But if you notice here, the Panasonic listing for their V-Log function upgrade now includes the GH5 as well as the GH4. So we do know that the uh, function upgrade for the GH5 will be about $97.99. I don't know why that happened or what's going on with it, but uh, it's there, so I guess uh, maybe we aren't going to have to wait as long, or maybe it's just a placeholder for something. I don't, I don't really know. Uh, I, but I'd say it's probably the same thing, because after all, we know, DJ, like me and you, that uh, the V-Log is built into the firmware. You're just unlocking mm-hmm. it with a serial. So realistically, if they want to charge the same price for both cameras, it could literally be the same SKU. You input your memory card, it sees the serial, and then it unlocks itself. So, um, But that's good to hear, too, because um, uh, that's one thing about this is like the price. Do we have a price on what the XLR adapter is? I Any mention of that? I See, so three ninety nine the adapter, and then another two grand for the camera. So you're at a, a A7S price, roughly twenty five hundred for the full package. See, and that's that's what I, I feel like this whole situation here with the audio adapter and everything else 
is Panasonic listening to their users and the kind of people who are using it? Because if you think about it, I, I know there's a lot of uh, back and forth and uh, people upset about the previous XLR interface for the you know GH4, uh, but that was totally targeted towards people with big cameras, big production workflows, using V-mount batteries and everything else. And then Panasonic saw and heard from the community, like, uh, we don't use this particular camera for that kind of work. Uh, there's other cameras we prefer to use for that kind of work. And they see that people like DJ and me are running around and we want small packages and we want light stuff and we want stuff that works on the fly and stabilization and everything else. And it seems like they're going down the list trying to check off as much as they can because I think with the price and everything else, this is this is perfect. Uh, if you're if you want that superb quality, a little bit of future proofing, um, as well as just ease of use, because uh, I don't know about you, DJ, but I've always found my GH3 to be spot on, reliable, and super easy to use, and no annoying Sony menus to have to you know spend hours in. <laughs> yeah, even Devin and I, who use cameras all the time, uh, with the few times we've been together shooting, it's like uh, hand him the A7S Mark II and he just uh, fumbles around with it for <laughs> 10 minutes. And I'm like, I don't know, it's in the menu somewhere. You, you can find it, man. And the GH5, I hope it, they've cleaned up the menus. I hope it stays as clean as the 4 and the 3. And if mm-hmm. it does, like that makes it extremely easy to use. As far as the adapter goes, though, Devin, uh, I mean, the original adapter, like it, it is, it's our own fault. The, the Panasonic listened. The community was like, yeah, I would love to have a hand grip with an XLR audio input. And they're like, well, we're taking up all this battery space. So we might as well give them all these other features too. And they'll really love us. Well, it turns out that's not quite what people had in mind for use. And, uh, you know, having external power and all the other things makes it yeah. a hassle. Now, We've got all the specs on the GH5. The Olympus OMD uh, 1 Mark II is already for sale, uh, $199.99, so basically $2,000. Uh, what, what do you think this is going to do to those sales? Do you think uh, that camera, since it made, the, made it to the market first, is, is winning or, or what? Uh, you know, that's really interesting because I think still uh, there's – I won't call it a stigma. I think just an overall opinion that uh, a lot of people who like shooting photos, they really consider the Olympus and they really look at it and video shooters um, besides like when they came out in body stabilization and stuff like that may give it a glance, but none of them are considering it as a permanent, I'm going to buy this solution and hold on to it for a few years for their kind of work. Um, In this situation, I think that Oh, something that I haven't been able to use myself, so it's really hard to say, but it sounds like the autofocus in the GH5 has gone even faster. Um, something about, I mean, I haven't run down the whole technical sheet about it, but something about it sampling the sensor much faster than it's done previously and the ability to sample that sensor faster than what the frame rate would be when you're shooting. Um, like, like I said, I, I'm talking vague because I haven't done a whole read up and I haven't even had my hands on it, so it's hard to say what it's like in practice, but but it sounds like, too, uh, just like the GH4, this is going to be a killer for autofocus, and it's going to even improve the autofocus in video mode way above what it was doing with the GH4, which I know we all argue about autofocus every episode, but uh, this is one of those things that I'd rather have it than not. So, Yeah, I want to mess around with the autofocus. Uh, now, Devin, you've had probably a few devices in your collection where you could click, set a focus point, click, and set a focus point. And we always think, oh, man, this is going to be the most useful tool. It's going to be so clever. <laughs> I'm going to use it all the time. Do you actually ever use it? Because uh, I've had several USB control devices for Canon cameras, all kinds of little adapters that brought me back to the same focus. And in the end, uh, when I'm moving around fast, if I want to pull focus, 
I lazily use my fingers on the lens or I just half press and shoot and I don't even worry about it. Now, are those things something that you're, you ever even used in other cameras in uh, the past? It's, it's one of those, uh, for most cameras, I haven't. Things like the C300 and whatnot, I really haven't. I know people say the autofocus on it is impressive, um, but I've never been in a situation where I've had to use it. Uh, with the GH3, on the other hand, there's been enough run and gun situations that I actually have used it, and I have used it extensively and understand that the way that I use it is probably way different than most. But with the face detection uh, during a shot, I'll literally click autofocus on and off. And it's not necessarily to set a point and then leave it there. It's one of those where if I'm running around with my camera doing documentary work, getting faces, uh, I'll usually have it on auto and it'll nail the focus on the face and it won't lose it. And it's been great at that, even though the GH3 may not even is not even as fast as the GH4 at resolving that. Uh, but then when I pan away and I need to focus on an object or, you know, something else, or I need to play with the depth of field or something like that, I'll switch over into manual during the shot. And then my, my hands always on the ring anyway. So, uh, I've never, for me, I've jumped between both. Uh, if it's a sit down, I never use it. If I'm on a tripod, I almost never use it because I have so much room and control. But when it's shoulder mounted and I'm running around or I've got it on a steady cam, um, I, it's, it's one of those that it's like it's a tool. And if you have a possibility for a retake sometimes too, I'm like, why not try it if I'm doing a steady shot that I'm going to do a few tries with? Or um, if it's documentary work where autofocus sometimes happens and that's just the nature of the work, then yeah it's not that big of a deal if it kind of misses i switch it manual i cat i catch the focus and we're good so uh i'm back and forth on that <laughs> now one more thing before we move off this subject back to the olympus omd one mark ii uh, that camera um we mentioned menus we're excited about the gh5 menu system because it's always easy to use uh, you've watched some of the videos on the olympus uh, does the menu system look like it's gotten enough better to make it easy to use? Or do you think it'll still be one of the nagging factors that keep people away from that camera? Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, for the most part, as, as silly as it sounds, while I consider it kind of a primary, most of what I hear other people talk about, and this may be slightly biased because they're all like Facebook groups and forum posts and things like that. Uh, <laughs> but most, most people I meet online, they tend to talk about the specs and they tend to want to bring up images and they tend to want to talk about all these technical details. The people that I bump into and in, in, out in the field, they're always talking about usability and they're always talking about it being easier. And it's one of those where I've seen some people like jump from a, uh, an FS7 to an FS5 for some projects because of that variable ND. They're like, oh, it just makes it so much easier to use. That's why I love doing this. And... Uh, so this is a situation where it's one of those where before someone buys a camera, I don't think they consider the menus uh, a plus or minus. They just they're like, I, I'm looking at all these specs. I like what it does. I like the images and I'm going to get it. And then once they have it, they're like, OK, uh, this is a kind of a downside. It's not as great as I would like. But, eh, you know, I've already bought it and I like the rest of it. So I go with it. So I think it's one of those that it doesn't become a problem until you actually have one. Uh, and then people will consider it. But I think I, I, I really doubt it determines when people buy a camera, if they get it or not, depending on usability, unless you're talking about your third or fourth camera, like DJ over here, then usability is everything. Cause he's like, well, I already got a camera that does 4k. So, you know, it's really got to sell me if I'm going to go with yours instead. That was actually the reason the 5d Mark four didn't stick around. I, I used it for a while and it was just, this doesn't add anything to my work at all. In fact, it kind of like uh, causes some problems with the uh, recording format and so on. It just wasn't something that was a, be a benefit to me. So 
you, you have to chuck it and move on to something else. And I hope the GH5 stands up to it. Um, I, I'm, I will talk about it as soon as I get one in my hands. I'm really excited about it. And to oh, be yeah. honest with you guys, my collection of Micro Four Thirds lenses has gotten out of control. Um, <laughs> I now own a Prime all the way from the 8 millimeter all the way up through, I think, the 300 millimeter. So uh, I've got the entire range. And the lenses are so small and so cheap that even when I travel light, I can throw four or five of them in my bag. And it's kind of become my favorite format just because my back doesn't hurt anymore. Like I, I can carry a single shoulder bag and I don't have to worry about, you know, my back hurting at the end of the day. And I can get almost everything done out of such a small kit. It's really and, interesting. And one more thing about it being a small kit. I mean, if you really want to get fancy and I've, I've seen this pop up a few times with a few shooters, you really want to get fancy in that backpack that's built to hold a 5D and, you know, your uh, 35 to 80 or whatever it is, your 2.8s and everything else from Canon, that big backpack. I've seen guys who carry two micro four thirds cameras with like, you know, six lenses and all the batteries and everything else they need for it and all the filters. And then on top of it, like they do a two camera shoot with like one camera on a tripod and the other camera on a light stand because the cameras are so light. You can support them with a light stand if your lenses are small enough. So it's one of those things that it's like it really expands your possibility of like, what do I really need for this project and what can I do with so little space? And it's great for that. Well, and the, the last uh, um, uh, piece I was working on, the, the short horror film, I actually used the GH4 as a tripod camera and the GX87 as a handheld B camera. And because I had an entire collection of lenses and that camera takes up almost no space in my kit, I was easily able to switch between shots and we could do it all in one take without having to do multiple takes. So, you know, now I've got the close up and the medium sort of the wide and I can crop in on 4k for lazy filmmaking and bam, I'm done. <laughs> I don't have to shoot anymore. And that turned what would have probably been a two or three day shoot into a single day shoot, which means an entire night of Epic gaming on tabletop, which uh, that's a whole nother story <laughs> altogether. But uh, there's a great game called Zombicide. If you guys are into that and uh, um, go check it out. That's all I got to say about that. Moving on, Devin, what <laughs> yes. about CES? Now I know since I've been gone and you've been gone and, and we've, haven't been doing the oh show. My goodness, yeah. Everything from CES came out. And at first I thought, oh man, we don't have enough time in the show to cover all the things we saw at CES. And then I started looking at it and realized, well, wait a minute, there really weren't that many exciting no. things. No, not really. Uh, so one of them is skinny TVs, guys. And the only reason this interests me is because um, I'm looking at a 4K television for my living room. Now that my old television has been delivered, I realized that plasma... <laughs> Weighs like 70 pounds. It's a little miserable. And even though I have the best that 2011 had to offer, it is not very good anymore. Um, these OLED panels look really great. And Devin, did you see these Sony A1E TVs? They're micro thin and yeah. all the uh, speaker system is built into the screen itself. And and aren't those the ones that uh, you mount with magnets? Yeah. Because oh they're God. so thin and light. It's it's beautiful. Uh it, Part of me is like, this is getting ridiculous because uh, if you looked at the LG offerings, they had the really thin television and then they had a giant sound bar that had the electronics inside. So like you've basically got the screen as small as you possibly can. And then the electronics are the limiting factor. I, at that point, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I like it, but it it, it might be, uh, over, over engineered. I trying to carry a dongle around for your big giant flat screen TV seems sort of 
strange to me. It it does, but for me, it's one of those you're paying for the aesthetic, and I get that. That has been with TVs for a long time. Uh, way back when, I'm sure, DJ, you remember, TVs used to come in wood boxes, and the type oh, yeah. of wood that was used was a marketing point for that television. So the, the aesthetics are always going to be a thing. It's super cool. A TV that sits flat against the wall is really cool. Uh, for me, uh, well, I mean, if you're like a homeowner and you own the property and stuff like that, uh, you know how much effort it takes to sink a TV into a wall, uh, moving around support beams and everything else. And so, as you, you know, you might consider, hey, if you spend an extra couple thousand on your TV, it's just mounts with magnets and it's already against the wall for getting that clean look. I appreciate it. It's not something I would ever imagine myself spending that much money on. But some of this stuff does kind of start to trickle down and we could be looking at a future where um, we have super, super slim display devices where and mounting solutions that become so easy because the display is so light. I could think of a few situations where you think about maybe like instead of buying a smart fridge, um, you put an Android tablet on the fridge that's, you know, paper thin. Uh, little things like that. It's inter- We don't know where it's going to go, but technology like this finds its way elsewhere, too, and I'm kind of excited to see what that does. It's funny you mentioned the fridge. Did you see the smart fridges where oh, yeah. uh, you uh, scan the barcode when you put it in and it can keep track of how much you have left by weighing the station in which you've set your milk and so and and yeah and then the one that you can use an app and it'll show you a video feed of what's inside of your fridge so you can see what you forgot at the grocery store like and you don't have to let the cold out of your fridge that's like a 27 inch screen mounted to your fridge what 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 efficiency they make it sound like you're like saving energy by not opening the fridge for five seconds oh my gosh does it take electricity the touch screen oh i don't know it's weird Uh, some of some of the stuff though uh a lot of my friends were actually like, really? A smart fridge? That sounds interesting. Like, what? What are you going to do with that? They're like, well, with a big screen, I could, you know, put recipes on it or watch movies while I'm cooking in the kitchen. Oh I'm like, the refrigerator is usually in the back corner of your kitchen. Yeah. You don't turn around to go check that out. All right. I digress. Let's move on to something <laughs> else. Uh, next thing on my list here, and this was interesting to me. I just threw these things in from CES because they were stuff I, I thought might be useful. How about a two terabyte thumb drive that is literally the size of your thumb? Uh, This thing is chunky. It is large and it comes from our favorite memory manufacturer, Kingston. And I say that tongue in cheek because I've had a lot of Kingston stuff fail over the years. Not exactly my favorite manufacturer, but two terabytes and the speed of these things, they're expected to be almost uh, SSD level write read speeds. That's a lot of data in a thumb drive. Devin, would you trust a project on this or edit off of something like this? Oh, absolutely. Um, But for me, usually the price isn't going to justify what we've got here because what we got here is something that's really nice, but I feel like you're paying extra for that convenience. In my case, you can already buy large one terabyte. I don't know if they have two terabytes, but large one terabyte Uh, external SSDs that maybe have a little cable or they're just a bigger package or something like that. And for me, that is pretty much pricing wise right now is really close to what SSD prices are anyways. If you just buy an SSD and throw it in an enclosure and they tend to be a little bit smaller because they get to play with form factor in a way that SSDs can't because they have to, you know, fit motherboards and crap. Uh, But for all that, 
uh, that to me is a smarter decision. It's small. It's light. It's like really here. You're really paying for that convenience of it all being one tiny little thing. And I already do a lot of editing when I'm mobile off of uh, external drives. Unless the client gives me an external drive that's not an SSD, then I have to copy it internally to work on it. But in general, uh, this is really cool, and I would, and I'm just excited to see that this will grow and adapt, and probably eventually come down in price. Where all those drives I'm talking about now, that are little boxes with a little cable on it, those will go away, and they'll just be these because price wise they'll be the same, and this is smaller and more convenient. So I'm excited to see it coming. Right now, though, no, I there are better options for people out there who are money conscious about the gear they buy. So one I use here is the uh, PNY 256 gig units, and these guys are okay for reliability, super fast for editing. Uh, you can get 200 to 250 meg up and down on these guys without issue. And the price, roll please, $68. <laughs> so, you know, as opposed to splurging, um, and if you think about a project, a single project you're working on, especially if it's a short film or a little commercial project, uh, 256 gig is probably going to be enough space to maintain all the assets and give you some headway for anything else that you might add to that in the short term and these are so affordable that i just work them in to the price of a job and you know basically hand over all the files and assets to the client when i'm done on one of these and and they pick for it so whatever you know and then i don't have to worry about they're like, oh, well, this is on a thumb drive. It'll be backed up forever. Well, I don't want to tell you that that thumb drive will never fail, but it's not my problem anymore. <laughs> well, Walk no, away. And that's, and that's a good point is I think a lot of people don't consider, hey, where are you going to keep the client files? And then to handing over the client files. Uh, a trick that I do, um, and this, this may be a little bit of a white lie, but I tell them that this is the only copy of the project. So when they take it, they treat it with respect and then they don't come back to me years later saying, Oh, we lost the flash drive. Occasionally they do. And I, because I like them, I'll be like, yeah, I still have a backup cause I keep track of everything I make. But when I give it to them, cause if they hear I have a backup and they hear that there's more copies out there, they throw it in their bag, they forget about it. And then a year later they're like, Oh, where'd it go? So uh, that's really smart. You bill it into the pricing. You are able to physically hand them files. They don't need to download it. Or, you know, sometimes clients have trouble just downloading things from a website. I've seen that happen. Uh, so being able to just hand them files and then it's kind of their problem. And that's a good way to go forward because most of the time when they're asking you for files, they aren't offering to pay you to retrieve those files. So uh, they just kind of expect it. And that's kind of the nature of the business we're in. I screwed up a few years back and for a while I was writing into my contract that uh, I would support data storage for up to six years for Ooh. these folks. I, and I was charging them for it. Uh, it was like a four or $500 data storage fee. But um, now I have to maintain a 48 terabyte server Jeez. in my house because there's so many freaking files and, you know, I have to make sure everything's backed up. So I have off, uh, you know, out of my house to, uh, to cloud backups for the most important files. And I have to have two servers in the house, one in the basement and one in the attic in case like something goes wrong or there's a fire. Hopefully I can run to one and save the other. You know, it's like, uh, don't do that to yourself, folks. No. Stupid move. Now, I didn't that, realize that until that I was That being older. said, all the backups that DJ has, you should do that for your own files. <laughs> Don't yes. promise to hold someone else's files, but everything he said is the right way to go about having local data, having it backed up, and having it off-site, because buildings do burn down and asteroids do collide with the Earth. So 
Well, and uh, one thing I did actually end up losing one client stuff and they came back and asked for it. And I run uh, Google Photos as a backup system on my backups. And even though everything was rendered and compressed to 1080p, Google Photos gives you unlimited storage. So I found all their files backed up to Google Cloud. And I didn't have to pay for that storage. It was, you know, low res 1080p, but they were happy. They're like, oh, thanks. You really saved us here, DJ. Good job. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, I really screwed up, but I just didn't have to tell you about it. So yeah. wonderful. Speaking of screw ups, uh, a long, long time ago at a faraway place, you guys may remember that I plunked down $600 on what was supposed to be the revolutionary drone that would follow you around wherever you went. And this is the guy right here. This is the Lily, and I was really excited about this. Saw some footage and thought this would be great. Having a camera that could follow a wristband around would create some excellent shots of me doing whatever. Uh, Now, I I was complaining that it never show up. They finally announced that they're going to ship it, and then the next week they announced that they're going bankrupt and no one is going to get a camera. Uh, also, incidentally, uh, there are lawsuits against uh, Lily for uh, false advertising because apparently a lot of the stuff that they were showing of their drone performing that, you know, actually did get me kind of excited about it. Uh, turned out to be uh, a DJI flown very skillfully by a pilot in another area uh, with GoPro footage. So, yeah, there you go, folks. Uh, Devin, you have any comments on this other than like, look at this sure. guy getting ripped off? <laughs> Sure. Uh, I mean, it's it's one of those two where it, it wasn't strictly them, I'd say, using that, uh, making that footage that was illegal or false advertising. It's the fact that they didn't append that video saying this is demo or this is like uh, simulated or virtual footage or something like that that indicates this isn't from the actual product. Uh, Kickstarter tends to be pretty big on that, where uh, one of the rules of Kickstarter and why Kickstarters tend to be slightly more successful than Indiegogo's is because Kickstarter requires you to actually have a prototype and not just have sketch up images of what it will look like when it's done and so included in that is like uh if you have a prototype of a drone and you show footage of it flying they expect that to be actually from the drone and that you have a working prototype so uh in this case it's really disappointing but it's one of those that this is the nature of kickstarter which oh my gosh the past few weeks um because i've been kind of getting into electric skateboarding and stuff like that so i backed a little thing on kickstarter and then seeing people just go nuts for months about when are we gonna see it and when's it and everything else i'm like guys this is kickstarter if you expect this to be like a sharper image catalog you need to stick to amazon like don't go on kickstarter because you'll lose your money (laughs) you'll lose it fast so uh, that's a warning to all you guys too. It's not a guarantee. And even this who with a lawsuit, I'm sure that it's uh, probably a class action lawsuit, right? DJ. I, I think it's brought to uh, brought into effect by the state of California, actually, because of their uh, advertising laws in the area where their headquarters mm-hmm. resided. Uh, so I don't think it's class action. Um, they do say they're going to refund everybody in the next three to six months. Uh, and it's first come first serve. So, you know, they probably burned through a lot of that money. I would wouldn't yeah. expect refunds for everybody, but uh, who knows how that's going to go? Sometimes, uh, sometimes you get buy. lucky, and like I got lucky because I backed a, a Pebble. Uh, the new Pebble watch on Kickstarter. And as you may not have heard, if you're not interested in wearables, uh, Pebble got bought up by Fitbit because Pebble was in a lot of trouble. But 
Fitbit buying out their technology, their IP, and acquiring some of their engineers in return paid off their debts. So actually, all the money, as far as I know, all the money was returned to everyone who backed that project. So I got my $200 back, which I'm super glad for. But that's something that can happen. Uh, If this company declares bankruptcy, uh, it's really hard to say that a lawsuit is going to work against them. Because if they're declaring bankruptcy because they can't pay the rent bill for their office or electricity or something like that, there might be several other people in line that get their money first out of a bankruptcy before this lawsuit would get their money out of it. But uh, this should be set an example of like how you need to be careful and uh, about Kickstarter or even if you're running one too. So yeah, one of the things that came up in the chat was a question about the E1 camera. And actually, that was a Kickstarter. I do have it. It's what I do the podcast on. And as a video camera, it sucks. Uh, guys, <laughs> don't ever spend money on it. It is a piece of junk. Um, but as a webcam, it is a top-notch freaking webcam. The HDMI output from this camera is clean, beautiful, and really easy to work with. So if that's all you're doing is catching 1080p out of a body that's very small and petite, great camera for that. Otherwise, uh, you might want to look elsewhere. The internal recording is awful. Uh, (laughs) The uh, updates to the camera have never really fallen through properly, so focus doesn't quite work right. Uh, They've never utilized the sensor quite right, so it never really matched up with the GH4, which Mm -hmm. it shares the sensor with. Uh, It's just... um, it's a hot pile, but you can find them for like 300 bucks. So if you're looking for the best of the best for a webcam and you already have some micro four third kit, you buy one of those, slap a lens on it, use a HDMI to USB 3.0 adapter and bam. Now you have crystal clear, beautiful video and you will be the winning person for every meeting that you attend via webinar. Uh, yeah. In fact, I get comments every time like, wow, you look really crisp, DJ. So there you go. Pro tip. Um, let's move on to the E 4K action cam. Now, Devin, I have one. You have one. Uh, apparently, there's a plus model coming out. Uh, yes. What's the difference? And it's it's only $200. Uh, they've already dropped the 4K one down to $200. So what are we getting here? What, what you're getting is you're getting a cold slap in the face to GoPro, as if GoPro wasn't in enough trouble already. Uh, I'm not saying the Yi 4K Plus is the end all to every action cam ever. Uh, but they go, hey, we're going to do 60 FPS at 4K now, uh, which is a really impressive stat. We're going to have voice control for stopping, recording, starting photos and all that, just like the GoPro does. We're going to run USB Type-C, which is supposed to allow, which uh, hasn't been officially shown or set up yet, but supposed to allow microphone input through the USB, which was something else that GoPro did that the Yi cams didn't. And now uh, they're talking about 135 megabit codec, uh, which is, I think, well above what the GoPro does. I think the GoPro is around 60 or something like that. So uh, the Yi is supposed to do between 60 and 135. I'm sure it's dependent on what kind of SD card you use. But in general, really impressive stuff. Um, And, uh, you know, it comes with all the other features that the last one had live streaming, image stabilization, uh, low light performance, uh, some denoising, some de-warping if you don't like the fisheye effect. So uh, really impressive at all at a price that's way undercutting GoPro. And I think uh, Yi is just really trying to take advantage of the fact that people were somewhat disappointed that there wasn't a lot of innovation in the uh, GoPro 5. And they go, this is our time to shine. This is our time to show how much you can get for less uh, to establish their brand. Because as I see it, 
Uh, Yee's also got a Micro Four Thirds camera, which has come way down in price. I think it's it comes with a lens, and it's three hundred fifty bucks for a pretty decent kind of point and shoot style. But it's an interchangeable Micro Four Thirds camera. I don't camera. know, man. That one's kind of iffy. Yeah, you don't like it. Um, but I, I'm just generally putting Yee is trying to build a name, and this is not the f- only thing they make. They make lots of other camera products, dash cams, and everything else. And I see this as an aggressive move to try to uh, put themselves in that market and really make themselves a name in it. Uh, little things. I enjoy too is the fact that it has a built-in quarter uh, quarter inch screw in the bottom. I don't know why uh, you know they never made that for the GoPros, especially the GoPros that are self waterproof, like the five and the sessions. I go just add a tripod mount. I go just make it easy for me. That's why all I need is like this camera, and I don't need cases or anything else. It's waterproof. I can pop it onto a little screw, and I'm good to go. Uh, but alas, they're all about their accessories and everything else. So. Um, I'm kind of excited for it. I don't know if I'd pull the trigger on it because I don't need that many action cameras. But if you haven't gotten an action camera and you're in the market, I think this is really good. I think you'd you'd have to try really hard to find something better than this right now. Well, there's two things that I wanted to point out that I'm excited about for this camera versus the original 4K action cam from Yi. And one of them is that they finally incorporated a USB audio external input into the camera. So with this one now with the USB Type-C adapter, you can plug into the camera and actually put a 3.5 millimeter jack into your camera, which the GoPro as well as the Sony uh, FX 1000 or whatever both mm-hmm. offer, which is, is, I mean, I know that's going a little bit far for an action cam, but come on, I want to be able to put like a lav mic into that and just do something quick. And I don't want the audio to sound like it came out of my phone or it is awful, you know, and I'm not yeah. going to dual record for something like that. So that's silly. The other thing is they're claiming, and I don't know if you saw this, Devin, but they're claiming about a 30 or 40% battery life increase over the original Yi 4K action cam, which that guy I, already did like two hours. Yeah, which is I'd, I'd have way, to see that. I'd have to see that in person. There's, that's a stat that's really hard for me to believe uh, until I see some proof of it, just because I was already really impressed with, with what they did with so little milliamp hours. I can't believe that they've like tacked on essentially what would that be like an extra hour that we're talking about close to three hours out of i'd probably say like 40 yeah 45 minutes to an hour extra Uh, to be honest though Devin, um and i've recorded and tested this multiple times i'm completely able to get two hours or at least an hour 45 minutes without issue Mm -hmm. out of every single battery on the e4k action cam it's never been an issue to the point where I used to carry like six batteries with my GoPro. Oh, yeah. I carry oh, yeah. like three batteries with the Yi, and I, I don't even have to worry about running out for the day. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to sit there and continually record, you know, <laughs> the right. entire day. But, I mean, uh, there's never a point where I'm like, oh, crap. You know, I just – this is my last battery, and I only have like 45 minutes of battery. I'm so screwed. No, that, that's not a problem. Well, and I, I think what it what it means for me, because I don't usually do a lot of long-form recording, which it's great for action cameras. So, like, set it up, hit record. I know for the entire event, you've got that angle. Uh, but for me, and kind of like you were talking about with, like, doing a quick uh, vlog thing or something like that, uh, the ability to like sit there and run the Wi-Fi and run all these different features and still have great battery life and not have something because like with the GoPro, if you remember like the four uh, and the three plus and all that, if you ran Wi-Fi, you're talking about maybe 40 minutes to an hour, like really short life where you kind of had to be careful for how long you had the camera on and you kind of had to like turn it off in between long sessions. One other thing to note, guys, and this came up in the chat room, I did end up buying a Sony uh, in-body image stabilization action cam. I think it's the 
FX 3000 or 1000 or whatever it is. And it's quite enjoyable. The only issue I have, and I'll put this out there so you guys know, is the audio jack does go crazy with certain mics for some reason, and it'll just blow the thing out. So, And I don't know why that is. If anybody has any input on what might be causing that, uh, let me know. But I've actually had to use like a potentiometer in front of my microphone in order to record into the camera. So it's, it's really weird. It doesn't happen with any of my other action cams or even plugging the mic directly into a regular camera. So not really sure what's going on with that. Maybe it's operator error, maybe mic wiring issues. I don't know. But the image quality out of that is top notch as well. Although, again, that camera is like, what, $300? Yeah. So it's $100 more than this. And, uh, you know, you, you're saving a little bit of money. You're probably going to be just about there for image quality. Uh, the Sony does look a little bit better in the uh, uh, video quality uh, is noticeably better. I'd agree with that, yeah. GoPro. So uh, just some things to think about. Um, all right, moving on, Devin, before we dive too far into action cams, which yeah. seem to always take up the show. <laughs> what is this thing that you put in the show notes? It looks like a camera. Apparently it charges something. It's what just it's just a USB charging dock that they made to look like an A7S. Could there be a more pointless product ever in the world yeah. with a, with a I mean, narrower gap of customers? It sounds kind of awesome. Like yeah, you I'm want sort of into it. It's seventy five dollars, and it okay. will it will charge. It has a small like area for charging your iPhone uh, or and your Apple Watch, and it's got an additional dock on the back of so, it so what this hole is right here in the front is like you said oh, i think that's supposed to be yeah that's supposed to be your apple watch charger so you set it on top of the lens um and then i think on the back or something like that i can't find a, a, a damn picture of it in use but you're supposed to like set your iphone in there too so i just i thought this was ridiculous especially for 75 dollars. but there must be some hardcore uh a7s fans out there uh sony fans that want <laughs> a charger that looks like their camera for charging their electronic devices i mean that sounds like a good insurance fraud scheme like take a picture with this and then be like yeah I, I fell and it broke it and it's a three thousand dollar camera it doesn't work anymore <laughs> All right, moving on. We got a light here, Devin. Quickly, lay it uh, on me, man. Uh, it's just, hey, if you guys were interested in the Cam TV um, uh, lights here, which have which come with the different mounts and everything else, um, uh, the, the fifty-five watt, the thirty watt, they're coming in tungsten now. Which I know for a few people who are interested in these lights, and these are the small uh, hard point lights with flags for you know doing hard uh, cuts with it, and they take Sony MP batteries in the back of them. Uh, I think they're really cool lights. I haven't gotten my hands on them yet, but if the daylight part of them has made you hold off because you prefer your lights to be tungsten, those ones have started shipping and they're the same price. So whether you want daylight or you want tungsten, you get both worlds now. Um, we've talked about these lights before, so we don't need to go into them, but if you're interested, go to came TV. Um, there's also several reviews on YouTube too. These seem like some pretty cool lights. All right, and then the last one, also yours. Apparently, Am uh, Amazon's working with Sundance. What? Uh, apparently, if you're uh, – and they're not saying this is a brilliant deal, but this is kind of an interesting thing to talk about with short films, feature lengths, and the approaching marketplace is that uh, if you read into it, Amazon is interested in buying up Sundance films that otherwise don't get signed in by Fo you know, Fox Searchlight or whatever else, whatever kind of uh, distribution is out there as a distribution package. Now they aren't offering a lot. And I, I say that with a, you know, a mark because most people will be like, Oh what? They'll give me a hundred thousand dollars. 
most features that get into Sundance costs more than a hundred thousand um, dollars. There, there aren't. I mean, you always have those low budget ones that kind of surprise people with what they can do with so much. Um, but they are also uh, offering VOD royalties at like thirty cents per hour viewed or something like that. Um, it's it's an interesting deal, and from the filmmakers I've talked to, there's probably not a lot of them that are interested in it unless they really feel like there is no life after Sundance, um, because this could be the last opportunity they have. There's some films that go to Sundance, and then even though they don't get picked up there, they go to other festivals, they have more meetings, or they do their own distribution. Uh, this is Amazon kind of saying, "Hey, sign this deal." We'll take all the load off of you and we'll just hand you some money and some royalties and you can go on with your life. So it's kind of an interesting deal. I think it's bad for Amazon because uh, they aren't really it's not like they're directly attacking the best content out there because uh, they're already like the worst option you have compared to getting picked up by a Paramount or something like that for distribution. So it's kind of this weird area where I'm like, Amazon, why are you doing this? And then I don't know of really any filmmakers who'd want to take advantage of it. But I think it's interesting. It shows that Amazon is still very dedicated to trying to grow themselves as a platform for indie filmmakers and everything else and hopefully this is just a sign of things to come and hopefully better deals and better content comes out of amazon i don't know i've been um i I create a lot of short films and they end up mostly just doing the convention circuit where you know you get some some extra little uh uh, you won this award and you won this award and like congratulations yeah Yeah, and we (laughs) fill the entire like bottom of the uh the box art with like a bunch of crappy leaves that are like you won all these festivals great wonderful you know what that works out to zero dollars and zero cents that True. i can do nothing with um other than to like wave my flag and you know this guy's really getting a lot of buzz because uh he's won all these awards well yeah great you know as soon as that pays me something right. what we end up doing is uh we roll a bunch of these short films into like a compilation disc and sell it as like a indie films from this area blah 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 thing and it does okay like you know we sell probably two or three thousand of them at a time but uh this i mean if you could get 25,000 out of a documentary and maybe it's like only a 45 minute or an hour documentary, that's actually, that's actually not bad. Well, it's, that's depending the, on the type of work you're putting into it. Yeah, that's the one place I see it working out because for uh, documentary uh, premieres that are happening at Sundance, they're offering 75K, which documentaries tend to be the kind of film, uh, even if they're feature length, that get done for less than $50,000, $40,000, depending on the nature of the documentary, uh, just because it usually is just one or two filmmakers with a camera that just kind of travel around. And so the expense tends to be way lower than doing something thematic and dramatic. So I, I do see it as being a real possibility for those kinds of people um for me though i'm looking long term and i'm like i hope this means amazon is going to start to try to become more of a distribution platform and work more deals and get better content because right now uh they aren't nailing it with content they've got a few good things but they're no netflix and they're not growing at the same rate that netflix is and everything else and i think the only thing they really got going for them right now is the grand tour um because that seems to be doing well everyone seems to love that and it's bringing people onto the amazon network or at least paying attention to it because people don't realize they get it for free. Uh, but um, at least here, I think that um, that it's, it's a good sign of things to come because I, I love having more players in the game and having Amazon in there fighting with Netflix and everything else is just going to mean better business for the indie filmmakers who are bringing the content. As far as the cost of a doc 
documentary goes to make. I know people that have made them for less than 8,000 out of pocket. So, yeah, you know, and a lot of those just sit on the shelf. They may not be amazing, but they're good enough to make some selections. Um, probably not Sundance quite, but uh, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, maybe they could throw in a lower tier, like the $20,000 tier. And, yeah. and here you go. You still walk away with a little bit of profit and that's enough for you to go make another short film or documentary on something, especially if it's something that's localized to your area. I mean, your weekends and evenings for a couple of events and like interviewing people, uh, it doesn't eat up a ton of budget. And uh, yeah. if you already have cameras, it's a good way to make a film without really making a film. Uh, <laughs> not to put too much dissing on the uh, on the uh, documentary makers. I, yeah. it's, I, we get into trouble when I go to festivals because you talk to people and they're like, I'm a filmmaker. I'm like, oh, yeah, what do you, what's your recent narrative? And they're like, uh, no, I just do documentary. And I'm like, oh, documentary, good job. <laughs> That's like a good move for like the person that makes regular films. But uh, I, I don't really feel that way about documentaries. There's people that do excellent documentaries, amazing stuff. Uh, so, you know, keep mm-hmm. doing what you do. Don't let me oppress you. Uh, on that note, Devin, anything else before we get out of here? I think we've flown through everything, covered most of the stuff. Did you want to talk about any of your uh, uh, being gone experience? Or is there anything really exciting in there? Uh, yeah, well, oh my gosh, um, cause I've been all over the place, uh, lately and it's been kind of a mess. Um, I, I'll tell you what the, you can never plan too much. Uh, there were, there were a few hiccups with the Twitter broadcast for the rogue one event that happened and, um, it just goes to show and I'm not going to get into the details and like, it's one of those where as a team, you can always do more preparation. And even if you have a few days to scout and everything else, stuff can go wrong and always have a plan B. Um, and just uh, reinstill that in, into people, especially when you're doing something live, when you're doing news or whatever. You only have one shot. And so backup plans are important um, as well as thoroughly, you know, testing and everything else. So it, it's one of those that. Um, it, right now, if you go and look at it, it looks brilliant. Um, they, they got it edited and everything else. And it's it's actually pretty fun to If you liked the cast from Oak One and their Q&A, and it's, it's pretty fun. And I liked it. And I liked being a part of it. Uh, but um, as a team during the live broadcast, there were some shortcomings. And I think that uh, it, that just comes down to uh, prep work, prep work, prep work. And you can never prepare too much. And if you think you've been preparing too much, it's still not enough. So I'm sure DJ has some of those stories, too of uh, things that haven't worked out. But for the most part, um, I was absolutely thrilled at the opportunity. It was so much fun, met so many people, uh, and I would do it again. Um, but yeah, prep work, planning, it's all important. <laughs> we, we let a good friend of ours uh, take care of some of the pre-production stuff, uh, renting equipment and so on, and we showed up on set, and he had rented completely the wrong stuff for the entire thing. So he had burned through a $3,000 rental budget for the day. Damn. And we had almost nothing we needed. Uh, you know, he managed to get the wrong type of lights. He managed to get the wrong dolly to go with the wrong cart. He got the wrong, like everything was anything that could go wrong. Like uh, he forgot to pick up the stands for a bunch of stuff. So like you had the lights, but you couldn't actually set them up anywhere. It's just, it was nuts. And uh, yeah, so I completely agree. Uh, pre-planning is key. 
and yeah. or bring your own kit if you can. Well, because yes. equipment will fail, and like that happens, and you got to think about well, what's my plan when I do it. Um, one of the things that uh, when I work with uh, CBS or something like that is that constantly there uh, I'm constantly monitoring and I constantly have if this breaks, I'm going to do this. If this breaks, I'm going to do this. If this does this, I'm going to do this. And I you try to figure out as many alternative plans as you can because equipment does break. So batteries start randomly not working and you know a microphone suddenly there's interference where there wasn't for two days and all this kind of stuff so uh always to always be mindful and always be like aware and think about how do i best handle the situation uh but that's i mean that's part of why i love it i can't speak for dj but problem solving that's what i love and that's part of the reason why we're in here doing what we're doing uh because you know it's that part of the mind that we're like we love fixing stuff so I see the bring your own gear to work day in the chat. And that's absolutely right, man. <laughs> yep. I always carry a bag with me, even if there's provided kit on set, just because sometimes you run into stuff you don't recognize, don't know very well, or uh, maybe they just really made some poor choices uh, in your kit and you are stuck with that if you don't have your own, uh, but bill for it. Make sure you bill mm-hmm. for your kit. On that note, Devin, where can people find you? Uh, Yo, guys, hit me up on Twitter, at DevoCut. I'd love to talk to you guys. You guys are always a lot of fun. Uh, Thanks for putting up this uh, starting back up rusty show. It's great (laughs) to see all you guys in the chat room. It's great to have everybody back. Uh, Plan on regular shows from now on, at least one to two a week. I'm going to try and rope Mitch in for a Friday show before I have to travel again. So look forward to that. You can find me on SoundCloud, iTunes, and anywhere podcasts are distributed. You can find me at DSLRFilmNoob.com. And, of course, One Lone Dork on YouTube and DSLR Film Noob on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we'll see you next time on another overly enthusiastic episode of DSLR Film Noob. Bye.